0: My name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Faith Lutheran Church. I know we've got some guests this morning. Uh, Welcome. Special welcome to those of you who are tuning in online uh, or if you are a guest today. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to uh, John, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Today we're going to be in John 15. Last Sunday we started a brand new sermon series called Good Question." And we decided that over the summer, um, you all are going to write the sermons, or at least you're going to create the topics for the sermons. And so many of you have been emailing me questions about the Bible, about Jesus, about Christianity, and about the church. And uh, some of you, uh, these questions have been, kind of been bouncing around in your head for years. I've always wondered about this. Others of you, uh, because you are reading through the Bible cover to cover this year, many of you said, I'm reading through the Bible this year and you are, you're doing it. You're reading through the Bible and all of a sudden you're going, whoa, there's a lot of stuff going on in here and you've got some questions. And so, there's all these different ways that you're, as these questions are bubbling to the surface, uh, that you've been reaching out to me saying, Hey, what about this in the Bible, or this with Christianity, this with Jesus, or what it means to be a a Jesus follower or serve in the church today? And so, today, uh, we're going to look at the question Should we be concerned? That with the rise of people in our community, especially in our nation, who are now self-identifying as atheists, agnostic, as what we now call the nuns, people who just don't go to church anymore, these numbers are rising. Should we, as Jesus followers, as church people, should this concern us? What do we do about this? We're going to camp out on this question today and look to God's word and what Jesus has to say to us. So I'm going to invite us to bow our heads as we have a word of prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful day you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, for the breeze that is blowing. We thank you, God, for the shade. We thank you, God, for your creation, your sanctuary that you have given to us, that we can worship you as a faith community. And God, as we sang about this morning, you have been so, so good to us. God, invite your Holy Spirit to continue to dwell among us, to wrestle with the hard questions of what it means to be a Jesus follower today. All these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, uh, several members of our family were traveling around uh, in uh, eastern New York, upstate New York, um, uh, Vermont, and Massachusetts, kind of rural areas, if you will. And one of the things that really struck us is we're traveling around rural New England, is that there are churches on every corner in New England. And of course, after a little bit of reflection, uh, I thought to myself, well, of course, there's churches everywhere there. This is the very community where the, the great enlightenment, the great awakening came to rise in the 18th century. Preachers like George Whitefield, preachers who went from town to town, village to village, Jonathan Edwards who preached these incredible sermons. And there was this movement of the Holy Spirit. And the people in New England just came alive. So, of course, there's churches all over rural New England. They needed churches because people started following Jesus in droves. So they built churches everywhere. And they've got these massive steeples, stained glass windows, and it's really fun to look at these churches. And, and so as we would drive by church after church after church, we'd slow down the car, we'd get a little bit closer, see when the church was built and what denomination it was a part of. But as we got closer to these churches, we noticed very quickly that many of these churches were no longer churches. They were community centers, art galleries, coffee shops, Bookstores, yoga studios, exercise gyms, even personal residences. And it was so interesting to see that transformation. They still had the tall steeples. They still had the stained glass as a way of a little bit of personality from a day of bygone era. And I got to thinking, I'm not that old, but I remember the day... When you had to go to church early to get a seat. Anybody remember the days when you actually had to go to church early? Because it was, it was packed. And if you didn't get there early, you weren't going to get a seat. You might be sitting somewhere in the back row. Or maybe you, as a, as a child growing up, you remember the day when stores were closed on Sunday. Maybe you remember the day when there were no activities on Sunday mornings. There were do you remember the day when there were no travel sports? Seems like a long time ago, right? No activities. Maybe you remember the day where almost everybody you knew went to church on Sunday morning. The people who sat home there was something different about them. But here we are today. And you're thinking to yourself, "Well, I don't have to go to church early." You might be thinking to yourself, there's about a thousand different activities I could do on Sunday morning. You're thinking to yourself, you know, there are fewer and fewer people that I know who go to church regularly anymore. Even my own kids, my own grandkids. And now we think to ourselves, you know, it feels a little bit strange to go to church, to go to worship on Sunday morning. There's so many other things I could be doing and other people truly are doing. The world has changed a lot in the last few decades. And at some point in time, you find yourself asking the question, am I crazy? Is, there, is this just some kind of fantasy in my mind? Have things really shifted this much? I want to assure you this morning that things, in fact, have shifted this much. We are living in a new day, in a new time. I recently ran across a survey uh, by the George Barna Institute. They did this massive uh, survey several years ago. And one of the things they discovered uh, is that between 1990 and 2010... There was a gradual decline in the life of the church in terms of church attendance, in terms of Sunday morning worship attendance, in terms of a church engagement. But from 2010 till 2020 there was a rapid decline. Things fell apart as it relates to people attending Sunday morning worship. Just 10 years ago, or a little over 10 years ago, 48% of Americans said, yep, I'm a regular Sunday morning church attender. And then just a year or so ago, before the pandemic, when Barna did this research, we're now down to 28% of Americans say, yep, I go to church every Sunday. And it's the mainline denominations that are really shrinking the fastest, I ran across a, a survey uh, not too long ago by a Lutheran denomination. And in 1988, when this Lutheran denomination came together, they had 5.3 million members in their, in their church body. But just a few years ago, they have now just under 3 million. And they did a study, they did a report, they did all the research and they self-discovered and they are self-reporting that in 20 years, they are declining so fast that they, they expect to cease to exist. 20 years. So they're just letting the rest of us know, hey, 20 years, we're not going to be around. Formerly a major denomination in the United States. I talked to a bishop a couple years ago uh, who was sa- part of that same denomination And he said, Brian, my main role as a leader in the church today is I provide hospice care for the congregations. Most of my time is shutting down churches, selling real estate, and providing care for those who are grieving, those who are mourning, because the churches are closing. That's what I do with my time. Folks, you're not imagining this. This is real, and it is happening in our nation today. And it's not just churches. Many Americans are now self identifying as atheists, agnostic, or non religious. We call them nuns N O N E S, not the nuns, you know, the Catholic nuns, but people who just don't believe in anything. In fact, these numbers are rising, and now 23% of Americans self identify as I don't believe in anything, I'm a nun. these numbers are increasing dramatically by what's going on. So again, the question is, should we be concerned about the rise of atheism, the rise of agnosticism, the rise of people who uh, self-claim that they don't believe in anything anymore? Should we be concerned for our churches, for our congregations today? What in the world will be the future like Uh, for our congregations and our church today. So on the one hand, I want to be very clear. Yes, we should be concerned. We should always, as Jesus followers, be concerned about those who are far from God. We should always be concerned about those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We should always be concerned about those who do not have a spiritual home, the church to grow and to walk with Jesus and to be in fellowship with other believers. Yes, we should be concerned. But on the other hand, folks, this is nothing new. In fact, if you were to ask God, hey, God, should we be concerned? I think God would look at us and say, you know, I've got thousands of years of experience of my people turning their backs on me. Thousands of years of my people walking away from scripture. Thousands of years of people, my people, walking away from a relationship with God. God be like, I get it. I hear you. I've been there. And this is kind of the situation for the disciples as Jesus is getting ready to leave the earth. The last week of his life, he comes to the disciples and says, guys, I'm leaving. You guys are going to be in charge. And they're like, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do now? Jesus, we don't have a mega church. We don't have lots and lots of people. We don't have thousands of people. We just got a handful of us. What do we do? And the disciples were absolutely freaking out what they were going to do when Jesus left. They thought things were going to die. The church was going to shrivel up and die. And so they asked the question, how do we move forward? And Jesus tells them, he teaches them. I think, in fact, he just reminds them what they already knew because they had been followers of God. And they'd seen this happen time and time again. And Jesus uses a very familiar metaphor for his disciples to explain to them what in the world they are going to do. And it's found in John 15. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that he, it will be even more fruitful. He says, you are already clean because the word I have spoken to you remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me. uh, You are like a branch that is... uh, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, when Jesus talks about being the vine This is familiar language to the disciples because the vine was the Old Testament imagery for God's people. It was the symbol of the nation of Israel. And so if you look at a coin, it's got a vine vine on it, an, an ancient coin from the Israelite kingdom. Because everybody knew that was the symbol of what it meant to be an Israelite, one of God's people. And so as Jesus uses this language, this imagery of the vine, all the disciples are thinking to themselves, I got it. I get it. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just talk about a vine. He talks about being the vine, the one who connects the people with God. He says, folks, I am the vine. If you want to be connected to God, you need to be connected to me. And those of you who have done gardening, you know what vines are like. They take a lot of work. You always got to keep pruning them back. Because if you let a vine just grow and grow and grow, it'll become unwieldy. And not only will it become unwieldy, but the fruit that comes off of that vine will either be really weak or it just won't bear any fruit at all. And so we all know this, right? You have to cut back on a vine. You have to prune a vine in order for it to bear any kind of good fruit. And frankly, to look good and to be manageable. And so this imagery of cutting back on the vine, of pruning the vine, the disciples understood this because in many ways, this is the story of the Old Testament, And I know many of you have been reading through the Bible cover to cover in the Old Testament. And you're seeing this familiar pattern over and over again of God cutting back on his people so that something more beautiful, something more blossoming could grow. The idea here is called remnant theology. Remnant theology. Now, when you think about a remnant, you might be thinking about like a scrap piece of carpet or a block of wood or maybe even a a leftover piece of fabric. I mean, we can all think of different examples of a remnant. And this idea of remnant theology simply goes like this, that God is not impressed with lots and lots of people. God is not overwhelmed with just excitement and joy for a great big mega church. God doesn't get super excited about massive numbers of people to do his work. God says, I can do my work with a lot of people or just with a handful of people, with a few people, even a remnant of people. And there's lots of examples uh, in the Old Testament. So I'm just going to back up to the Old Testament here this morning. And I'm going to hit on a couple that are really familiar to you all. Remember early on, shortly after God creates the world, things went south almost right away. And we read in Genesis 6, the Lord saw, saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. Now, we don't know exactly how many people are on the earth, but there's a bunch And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at that time. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. You know this story, and so what does God do? He takes eight people. I don't know if there were hundreds, thousands of millions of people on the earth, but God says, all right, I'm just going to take eight. Noah, you're in charge. Gather some animals, build a boat. We're going to flood things out here, guys. We're starting over. It's remnant theology. God says, I'm starting over. I don't need all these people on the earth wicked in every way. So God takes eight and calls uh, the human race. Then there was uh, uh, further another time. And you know this story. God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And so God rescues them with a guy by the name of Moses. And God uses Moses to lead two to three million Israelites, God's people, out of slavery in Egypt. And they get out in the wilderness, and you would think, man, God just rescued them. God just saved them. I'll bet you they are so grateful. I'll bet you they were so happy and they just had hearts filled with gratitude. If that's what you think, you'd be wrong and you've never read the Bible. Because when after God rescued them, they went out into the wilderness and they complained and they moaned and they groaned about how everything was wrong. And God says, really? I just saved you. Two to three million of you. Starting over. And so, for the next 40 years, the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness. And God says, You guys aren't going to see the promised land except for two of you, Joshua and Caleb. That's remnant theology. Not even Moses got to go into the promised land. God says, I don't need two to three million of you as my people to do my work. Two's enough. Last example or third example I want to give you. Fast forward about 500 years. At this point in time, the Israelites had become a great nation under King David. And after King David, King Solomon built the temple. We know this as the golden era of the Israelites. Everything was good. They were very financially prosperous. They built this amazing ornate temple in Jerusalem. And they had power. And things were good. And again, you would have thought, man, the Israelites must have been so grateful. God, thanks for finally getting us to this place where you have made us so powerful and wealthy and ruling over the nation. And, and let's just be honest, they were comfortable. But that's not how they responded. The story in the scripture tells us that they began to worship other gods, false gods around them. They weren't grateful. So God says, All right, if you want to worship those other gods, you can do that. And God allowed them to be conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And they carted the Israelites off as slaves in a foreign land that we know today as modern day Iraq. And they're miserable. And God says, I'm not finished. I'm going to use a remnant. So at this point in time, God speaks to a guy by the name of Isaiah, who is a prophet. It's recorded in Isaiah 10. In that day, a remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people will be like sand of the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteousness. And that's, of course, exactly what God did. He used a remnant to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. God didn't need a whole army to do this. He just needed a few faithful people. And you probably remember the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The Old Testament's filled with lots and lots of examples where God looks at God's people and says, I'm so happy to have lots and lots of you as to be called my children Israelites. But at the end of the day, you need to know I'm going to do what I'm going to do with or without you. And I'm always going to use a remnant, a small number of people to accomplish my purposes. Fast forward uh, to the New Testament. I think one of the greatest examples of the remnant, are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now remember at this point in time, Jesus um, had spent three and a half years teaching and preaching and healing. Over the course of Jesus' three years, thousands of people interfaced with Jesus. And Jesus maybe stood out on, you know, a beautiful place and there were people in their lawn chairs and Jesus taught them. Thousands of people. And at the end of his ministry, as they walk into Jerusalem... And they're thinking about what does it mean to be followers of Jesus? Thousands and thousands. Jesus had a mega church. His church was bigger than saddleback. It was bigger than elevation. It was bigger than North Point. Jesus had a massive church. Remember? Thousands of people watched him, listened to him. And Jesus said, I love preaching to the masses. But here's how I'm going to build my church. Twelve guys and a handful of women. Because in the end, the megachurch all abandoned him. It was just a handful of men and women who were committed, dedicated to the Jesus movement and sharing all that was going on. And it's recorded this way. In Acts one, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from Jerusalem. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon of the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I can think of no better example of remnant theology than the birth of the church. Thousands upon thousands of people witnessed the life of Jesus Christ, but Jesus used a small group, a remnant, a handful. So here we are in the 21st century. What do we do? I think first of all, I think God is practicing remnant theology yet again. I think what God is doing in our day, in our time, and over the past few decades, especially this past decade, is God is uh, dividing the church between those who are cultural Christians and those who are convictional Christians. Let me just define those terms for you a moment. A cultural Christian is someone who says, you know what, I grew up in the church. I'm familiar with the church. I like the church. The church is fine. But I'm not really committed to the church. Because there's a lot of things I can do on Sunday morning. And if it's convenient... I'll go to church on Sunday. I've got a Bible. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Christian. I got a Bible. I don't read it, but it's around. I can find it every now and then if I need to or if I want to find a Bible verse. I'm a cultural Christian. It's what I call myself. It's what I do. It's who I am. I don't really give to the church i got my own stuff going on. Cultural Christianity is dying today. Convictional Christianity is not. Convictional Christianity says, I don't care where my parents went to church. I don't care if my parents went to church. I'm going to church. A lot of things I can do on Sunday morning. But I'm making a decision to go to church. Convictional Christianity says, I don't care what other people are doing on Sunday morning. I don't care what other people's beliefs in the culture are. I'm following Jesus, I'm following his word and his teachings. A convictional Christian says, I don't just have a Bible, I read my Bible, and I discuss my Bible with other people in the church, maybe in a small group or in fellowship. A cultural Christian, very low commitment, low expectation, a convictional Christian, high expectation, and high commitment. I think what God is doing today is saying simply, we're separating here, folks. All the cultural Christians exit stage left. Convictional Christians, it's good to have you. We're pruning. We're doing whatever it takes to make the church of God the church of God. Ed Stetzer, one of the church leaders today, he runs the Billy Graham Institute at Wheaton College in Chicago. He says it this way in terms of what's going on in the world today. He says, quote, no serious researcher thinks Christianity is dying. What we are seeing today is not the death knell of Christianity, but another indication that Christianity in America is being refined All our research shows that cultural Christianity is on the decline, but convictional Christianity is not. And then he cites a study by the Lifeway uh, Research Institute. He says, over the past decade, convictional Christians have held steady at 23% in the life of the church. So where's all this church decline coming from? It's coming from the cultural Christians, people who really never believed in Jesus in the first place. It was just convenient for them to show up. It's because just what you did. God is, as according to Stetzer, he's refining the church and Jesus talks about this to us in this parable of the vine This is how God does it. So we think about these things today and we ask ourselves, well, what do I do? Should I be worried? Should I be concerned? I have a little confession for you. For many years, um, I was convinced uh, that the way to grow the church, to do ministry in the church, was to revitalize the church. I mean, we've known the churches have been declining for a long time. And so I had the mindset, well, I'm just going to be a part of revitalizing the church. Now, ladies, this is a question for the ladies this morning. How many of you have ever given birth or given life? Any of you Any of you ladies done this? Okay, raise your hands. Okay, bunch of you, lots of ladies here have given birth or given life. Okay, keep your hands up. How many of you ladies have ever raised the dead before? None of you? Guys, how many guys have raised the dead? You saw someone who was dead and you raised that person back to life. Any guys? Me neither. Folks, the point is simply this. It is nearly impossible to raise the dead. But God has called us to bring life, new life into the world. That's how God has called us to be the church. And some of you know this. Some churches are dying. Other churches are already dead. And what we do is we spend a whole lot of time trying to revitalize them and bring them back to life. They're dead. And it's like reorganizing the chairs on the Titanic. They're still going down. And I think one of the best things, the most compassionate, loving things we can do as a church is to let the dying die. To let them be dead. To love them, to care for them. But let them go. We got to be about bringing new life. Into the world. You know, we shouldn't be surprised. This teaching, I didn't just make that up, right? This comes from Luke 9. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, Let the dead bury the dead, but you and go preach the kingdom of God. And so really, in many ways, that's what Faith Lutheran Church, we were built on this premise of letting the dead bury the dead. We're not going to wring our hands over dead churches, over dying churches. We are going to breathe life. We're going to focus on planting churches. And some of you know this. This is our four-year anniversary this weekend, thereabouts, where Faith Lutheran came together, came organized together. And over the past four years, we've been in the process of planting new churches. We don't spend a lot of time trying to revitalize dying or dead churches. We plant new churches. This is who we are. This is what we do. Because this is what Jesus has called us to be about. Bringing new life. Planting new life. And so I ask you again this morning. Should we be concerned... About the rising number of atheists, agnostic, nuns in the world, in our community. Yeah, we should. Of course, we should. Because people who are far from Jesus matter to God. And we need to be concerned about those folks. We have to ask ourselves what is my role in all this? Am I connected to the vine? the true vine. And how am I bearing fruit in the world? God wants you to be a part of the vine. He wants you to be connected. He wants you to be part of his kingdom and to bear fruit. But make no mistake about it. If you choose to not, he's going to do it anyways. He's going to grow his kingdom through a remnant, a small number of faithful people who look to Jesus and say, I'm in. Sign me up. I'm committed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who is so patient with your people. For thousands of years, Lord, your people have been disobedient and uh, unfaithful to you. And yet you continue to reach out and pursue us and love us and care for us. And God, you remind us that time and time again, whether we choose to participate in your mission or not, you're still going to do what you do. Welcome new people to experience life through jesus christ so thank you god for your faithfulness thank you god for the invitation this morning to use us god we thank you for your holy spirit to guide us to lead us and to empower us to be a part of your church your remnant in this world lord in your mercy hear our prayer